it's Billy. Welcome to the Start Small, Believe Big podcast, a safe place for those desiring to find their footing yet feel overwhelmed and discouraged. You don't have to have it all together to start with one small step. I believe as we begin in believing in the big God we serve, we can find confidence in our purpose and calling. Sit down and get comfy or turn up the volume while you work out or get life done. Let's not resist that small beginning, but persist in the next thing God is calling us to do. Today, I want to welcome our guest, Suzanne Woods Fisher. Suzanne is an award-winning, best-selling author of more than 30 books, including On a Summer Tide and On a Coastal Breeze, as well as The Nantucket Legacy, Amish Beginnings, The Bishop's Family, The Deacon's Family, and the Anna Eagle Hill series, among other novels. Amazing. She is also the author of several nonfiction books about the Amish, including Amish Peace and Amish Proverbs. She lives in California. Her recent novel, The Moonlight School, is inspired by true events of the Moonlight School in Rowan County, Kentucky, during the early 1900s. Born and raised in Kentucky Hills, Cora Wilson Stewart, the superintendent of education, understood the plague of illiteracy and came up with a plan to open the schoolhouses to adults on moonlit nights. This movement almost completely eliminated adult literacy in this county and was the catalyst for shocking the nation into taking adult literacy seriously. Even today, the U.S. celebrates National Literacy Week. Suzanne, welcome to the Start Small, Believe Big podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks, Billy. This is a pleasure. I just feel like I'm making a new friend today. (laughs) Thank you. I know we had a little chat before we came on and and it was just so wonderful. I wish we had recorded it all so I could piecemeal pieces together, but I'm hoping we can um, revisit some of the things we talked about. And I just want to say I have begun reading this book, your newest book that's coming out today as this podcast is being published the Moonlight School. And it is an amazing book. I've truly enjoyed it. And I've also been encouraged and inspired by it. So we'll get into that a little more in in a minute. But I want to talk about first, your novel is based on a true story that occurred during the early 1900s. How did you find out about the story and what made you want to dig into it more? It's got a great backstory because I think it's it's a little bit of just inspiration and how does how do you find inspiration? How does it how do you open your mind to it? Because it's everywhere. So I listen to a classical music station as I write in the mornings. It's just my habit. I, I like the instrumental and I love the classical music. And there was this one day, and it was probably September 5th, a couple of years ago when the radio announcer made this comment in his beautiful baritone classical music voice, where he just said, on this day in 1911, the first Moonlight Schools began, the grassroots movement by Cora Wilson Stewart. And there was something about just maybe the sound of the Moonlight Schools that sounded so appealing. I just stopped what I was doing. I did a little research. I did a little more, a little more and a little more. And it is such an amazing story. And I'm not giving away the book because the book that I wrote is a fictional account of this story. So it's it's not a spoiler to know the 
the basic truth, which is this woman, Cora Wilson Stewart, who is the first female superintendent for Round County, Kentucky. And you're from the South too, so I really appreciate how the book kind of resonates with your understanding. That means a lot. But here she's the most unlikely person for, in a way, she was divorced three times in 1911. I mean, she was a, she, women did not have the vote and yet she was elected and she was supervising at least probably, there was a town school and then there was, I think, at least 51 rural schools. And we're talking one room schoolhouses, so isolated. So let's go back to 19, actually even 1910, where we have the U.S. Census and the illiteracy rates in 1910 in the United States 7.7% 7.7% of the population could not write their names. Could They were really functionally illiterate. So 7.7%. At that time, that was like five and a half million people. Kentucky, 1910, it was 12%. So higher than the national average. Rowan County, which is really Appalachia, far east. It was not coal. It was actually lumber, a lumber county, over 25%. And probably higher because it was so isolated and, you know, trying to such a distrust of government people trying to ask questions and everything. So this is the world Cora Wilson Stewart, who was raised in the area. This is what she came into. And she had this idea. First, she actually believed what the academics told her that that only children could learn to read and write, that there is like a window in childhood. And this was what the academics, this was the thinking of the day. And she believed it too. She accepted that until there was three moments, three, and I actually do weave these into the story where adults surprised her. And and one was this, an old woman named Molly McLaughlin, who's in the book and taught herself to read. And, And I think Cora was astounded that maybe, maybe they could, maybe there could be a way to reach them. But then the question is how, because these are hardworking farmers. They're up in the hills. They're, like I said, they're distrustful of, of you know, edu- people um, nosing around and that kind of thing anyway. And she came up with this idea of in the autumn, when the, the crops were in, she opened these moonlight, these schools on moonlit nights. She had to talk her teachers who were really 16, 17 year old boys and girls themselves. There's a saying that the way you know the difference between the teacher and the students is the teacher had shoes on. Oh, wow. young uneducated I mean barely educated yeah. but they were willing I think she just had such a magnetic personality they were willing to stay after teaching all day long Cora really believed in giving dignity to adults mm-hmm. so they weren't she created a whole curriculum that was relevant to being to an adult for instance just um, the weather the crops the information that they would need in their life so that it it became relevant right away. Anyway, first night was September 5th, 1911. And she hoped, hoped 150 people would come out of the hills and hollers. Hoped for that. 1,200 people. Oh my gosh. 1,200 people from age 18, mothers with little babies, all the way to, I think the oldest person was 86. And within two years, like you mentioned, she wiped out adult illiteracy in her county. And just a grassroots movement, volunteer-based, such a vision. 
just changed people's lives. And that spread to Kentucky. Moonlight School concept spread to Alabama, to other Southern states, to Indian reservations, Native American reservations. It's just a, a remarkable story of a woman who, you kind of an unlikely individual, though I think she was sort of a woman ahead of her times, but so willing to just push against what was told to her for the common good. Yeah. And talking about starting small, you know, I think about how we think sometimes that one little thing we do isn't going to make a difference. And she allowed herself to take that first small step. So that to me is even so encouraging in our lives that we can see that Things don't start out completely formed and developed. We have to take that first stop, first small step of faith. Question for you, then, what do you see at the correlation between the 1900s and now our regarding literacy? Is adult literacy, st- illiteracy still a problem in the United States? So you would think it wouldn't be, wouldn't you? You'd think we would have, you know, this wonderful nation of ours would have solved the problem. So let's go back 1910, U.S. Census says 7.7%. Right. National statistics now, 21% of Americans are functionally illiterate. That is a shocking number. And a sad number. It's very sad. I had shared with you before that I grew up in eastern North Carolina, and there were many people that I was in contact with that didn't read Um, To this day, I still believe that my father could not read. He could write his name. He could do numbers. That was his big thing. He could do numbers. But anytime there was something to be read or filled out, it was always, oh, my reading glasses aren't working. So growing up in the atmosphere and young, realizing that my father couldn't read and I could, and then there were other people near our farm that would call me over to read something for them because their light wasn't good or their glasses weren't working or they broke their glasses or whatever it was. It was surprising to me how many very successful people when it came to living life many intelligent people Mm -hmm. that I knew could not read. And I think that's the shocking thing is that the misnomer of this is that if you can't read, it's because you're unintelligent. You can't read because, you know, you're, you know, you're not smart enough to do so. What do you think now is one of the reasons that illiteracy in the U.S. is at such an alarming high percentage of our population? You know, there's probably a lot of factors, immigration probably being one of the most significant, but it is a a really serious issue that I think more than anything I've gotten from Coral Wilson-Stewart is a sense that every single person can make a little bit of a difference here, even if it's modeling reading well, for example, I have a little free library out in front of my house that I put up a couple of years ago. I love that. <laughs> I'm actually trying. I love it so much. I'm trying. We're doing pre-orders to boost, obviously, pre-orders for the Moonlight School, but I'm also offering a donation to Little Free Library for every book ordered because I want to have enough to put a Little Free Library in rural Appalachia. Oh, that was the part of just as a thank you for you know, sharing this story with the the world. But, you know, there's, I mean, we can read to children, we can read to, we can donate books to schools. It It's amazing what you can do. I have friends who 
help at our public library when, you know, and I know this is a COVID time right now, but it's not going to last forever. And, and there's just so many ways to make a difference. Each one, teach one, you know, just one by one, you don't have to be responsible for everyone. Prisons are a place that are, it is just horrifying to see some of the statistics of three out of five people in prison can't read. It's, it's so sad. 85% of youth offenders struggle to read. You know, when parents are living in poverty, they don't have books, they can't read well, they're not going to have books in the home. Right. And the cycle continues. So it's, it is a really serious issue. And I think it's something that we need to take seriously and see what we can do to kind of make a difference. What are your hopes with Moonlight School that you hope that people get out of this book? What is something that you feel that in writing it that you wanted people to understand? Well, I have to be honest that there's a little part of me that's always drawn to women in history who somehow did not get stopped by all the pressures that are telling her to be quiet and to stay in the background and to, you know, that she, her voice doesn't count and all that. And I'm, I'm just amazed to find a woman like Cora Wilson-Stewart rise up. I think she felt she was, like I mentioned, she was divorced three times, twice to the same man. So she came to a point, I believe, where she felt relationships were not going to be her, her real calling in life, but her work was. And she just threw herself into her whole life was, was, she was just a remarkable advocate for adult literacy, um, right to her very end. So she's so impressive that in itself, I think just, just someone like that, that, that is like a beacon of light. They're just showing you a little bit of this can be done, you know, but then also, I guess the, the idea that she developed something out of grassroots movements out of volunteering it wasn't any kind of government funding there wasn't any committee there wasn't any you know it, it was really her heart led her and she had a deep faith I think she she put it in she put feet on her faith and she really made a tremendous difference you mentioned when you were growing up and people would kind of call and give you a little bit of a probably a fib or a white lie to read something Think of the shame. Think of the embarrassment that people have felt because of this. And you're so right. It's not because they are not intelligent people. It's opportunity. It's a life that was probably needed on the farm, you know, or needed. School was not a priority or it was not valued, but, um, but they, they feel it. You know, it's, it's, they have, I think what I've heard, I read this one book that talked about when people can't read, they don't have a voice. And that, that's a pretty significant thing. I mean, as we're seeing in our country now. So. That, when thinking back to people that couldn't read, to me, of course, it wasn't a lack of intelligence. Many of these people were very, very smart. But when a grandparent can't read and a parent can't read, they don't encourage their children to read because of the shame that they feel. Mm -hmm. You know, there were many houses growing up that I had friends that you're not allowed to read because if you read and you have an issue with reading, you're going to turn to your parent 
And then they're going to have to tell you that they can't read. Do you know what I mean? It's that vicious cycle of embarrassment and shame. And I don't know how to read, so I can't help you read. Um, you know, and that to me really puts out a lot of the light and passion that people have in your book, the um, Molly, the first one woman that the, um, that Lucy went into the home of, she said, you know, I wish I could read and write my own letters. And this was an older woman. And there were, when I read that, I thought to myself, there were so many people that never said that to me, people that worked on our farm, people that lived next door, whomever it may be, they never said those words to me, but you could see it in their eyes. Mm -hmm. You could hear it in their heart that they just wish they could read. And being so young, I look back, why didn't I teach them to read? Why didn't I... I didn't understand it enough at that time. And I think that's what now has pushed me in putting that fire, you know, to help and serve others in a way that they may not even know that they need help or need to be served in those ways. Um, and that at your book, I was talking to you too, that you talk about poverty in a way in the Appalachians that, that a lot of us, don't understand that there's still poverty in the U.S. that way. We see urban poverty more so on the news or on that, but talk to us a little more about what your research told you about the poverty in Appalachia. Is that still going on? Is that, are there pockets of areas that are living in such poverty that they don't have availability to resources? I mean, it, it's interesting because I think COVID is hitting Appalachia worse than any other part of the country, which is such a picture of, of all that we're talking about, of just, you know, isolated communities, um, thinking of a lot of distrust, you know, um, so many, so many issues. And, and yet I don't mean to also negate some of the, the beauty that is part of the world because there is. And in fact, I, I've got a, a review the other day that criticized the book saying I romanticized poverty, which I thought I really never intended to do that. But I, I definitely tried to see this world through Cora Wilson Stewart's eyes where she had, she had a lot of your point of view, Billy, where she saw these people as so rich. And so, um, you know, they had so much to offer. They, here's one thing I learned and you probably knew this, but a lot of, the language that we think of as maybe kind of kind of hillbilly, sort of a little bit, it doesn't sound intelligent to our ears, and it actually comes out of Chaucer's English. <laughs> like it comes out of, you know, the 13, 14, 1500s of, of Scotland and Ireland. And, and it just, the music that, that, the clogging that goes back to Ireland, I mean, there's, there is such beauty in the fact that they were isolated, that their culture is intact even now. But there's a flip side, you know, there's the, the isolation has prevented a lot and the isolation has also protected a lot. Yeah, you say about the language, it's so funny because my husband is from Chicago and I'm from Eastern North Carolina. And when my husband first started going home with me, I had two brother-in-laws that had very strong Southern accents. My dad had passed by this time and my 
my dad had a pretty strong down east accent or eastern North Carolina accent too. But when I take my husband home, I'd have to translate for him because <laughs> as in your book, there are words that people say that we totally understand and we get, and that's part of our culture and who we are, but it is a different language. I jokingly say that you have to have a passport to come, to go to where I came from. And I don't mean that in a, a bad way. I'm just saying it is a different culture and a different norm for us there. When my boys were growing up, they say, mom, can I speak to nanny, my mom? And I'm like, how'd you know I was talking to nanny? Because you got North Carolina accent going on. (laughs) You got North Carolina accent going on. And it's like, yeah, I do. So in that, it's funny when you said that you got a critique about romanticizing poverty. I think one of the things that my husband and I have done a lot of work in poverty outside the country and also in the U.S. And one of the things that I think breaks my heart sometimes is that people want to degrade the people in poverty so much. They want to make it look ugly and look um, bad. And poverty is bad. Don't get me wrong. But they are some of the most connected to Jesus, joyful, peaceful people I've ever met. And that to me is not romanticizing poverty and putting the human side and their their peace and joy that they have into play because that to me isn't romanticizing it. It's the reality of it. Mm -hmm. They don't see it as suffering as much as we do. Mm -hmm. And there is suffering and no food and and food Mm -hmm. instability. That's a a whole nother level, you know. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted you to know that I don't see you romanticizing poverty. I see the reality of it and the passion that's coming out of you in that. Um, What was your favorite? Who was your favorite character in the book? It might have been Brother Wyatt. Um, He he was this um, itinerant singing schoolmaster who and this was sort of fun for me to study was in illiterate environments like, you know, the back country, these singing school masters would come along again in the fall usually. And they'd have almost like, well, it sounds like almost revival meetings where you'd have a tent and you'd have singing and they use something called the shape note notation, which was teaching people how to sing by, because they could recognize the different shapes of the music. And it was, it was just such a, um, I loved it because music speaks to all of us at all times. It's the universal language. And to think that people like this, this wonderful Wyatt character, that he was, he was brilliantly talented himself. So he had, he has a wonderful kind of story that sneaks through the book, but he has chosen to come into these communities and teach these singing school classes and, and Lucy, who's this young woman kind of observing all this, she's from Lexington and has been very sheltered, has had a very protected life and is suddenly thrust into this world of, of Eastern Kentucky and not at all prepared for it, comes in with sort of um, a, the eyes of what probably any of us would, walking into a, a cabin with a dirt floor and chickens inside and things like that. But she grows through so much through this. And I think Wyatt was a wonderful uh, guide for her in looking deeper and understanding the fuller picture and, and looking at why people were the way they were or, or the beauty of, of their perspective. So 
That's beautiful. Well, congratulations on the release today of the Moonlight School. And this is National Literacy Week. And I think the one question, one of the questions I have, we're going to try to wrap it up. I could talk to you all day because I'm enjoying it so much. But what do you think that um, this, how this book can continue to encourage literacy, to encourage those of us reading it to step into the world of helping others read? What is your hope for that? I love that question, Billy. And I think some of it is the idea of sort of each one teach one. And that could be you just, one, your eyes are a little more opened to the fact that reading is really important, really, really a gift. Mm-hmm. So supporting teachers, supporting supporting our neighborhood children, reading to your children and grandchildren, modeling it yourself, taking, you know, going to the library a lot. I mean, just even that doesn't have to even change your life. That's just sort of elevating what you're doing when you read. You are you are really breaking a cycle that you may not even understand is there, but and then I think if you have the time and the openness, I have friends who work at our public library and just volunteer one day a week, an hour or two in the afternoon to work with. There's one who works with a man from Russia. There's one who works with a man, a woman from Mexico, just helping some basic things like, you know, reading a prescription med- medical medicine bottle, little things that are critically important to be able to just read that are part of life, reading the newspaper headlines. So I, I sometimes I even think about working in a prison because prisons really are a place of such deep need and we shouldn't be wasting their time in prison. We shouldn't be wasting our time. Like all of our time belongs to God and, and even in prison, it, can, it doesn't have to be wasted. So there's so many ways to, to step out a little bit out of our comfort zone. That's really good. Thank you for challenging us in that because I think we can so much get comfortable where we are and what we're doing that we don't tend to reach out. And that is something that I'd love to do is to challenge people to step out of your comfort zone. And and that is definitely stepping out and doing small things. There are other small things that I know that we've done in the past where some schools have wish lists on Amazon and you can just order the books that they need and have them shipped to them during this time where we can't be volunteering as much. You know, there are different ways that we can help out. So I really love that. And I love that you have this, this um, free library in your yard. I want to put one in my yard. If I lived in one place long enough (laughs) to keep it supplied, I would love to do that. Well, one last question. I just want to ask, this show is called Start Small, Believe Big Podcast. And I just want to ask, what is one thing that you feel God is calling you to? And what is the one step forward in that purpose and calling that you're taking? Well, you know, interestingly, I think I actually am at, I see God calling me to um, an extraordinary patience right now. And in that of being still and being quieter. And, and I would not have said that a month ago, but I think God call, God is at work at, in so many different ways. And it isn't always busyness or, or filling up the calendar or so that's kind of my answer to that in 2021. It's it's um, patience. That is really, really good. So this book is coming out today. What are you working on next? Do you have other books in the making? Are you one of those continual writers? 
I am so thankful for that because I know that's that is not an easy place to get to. And I always feel like each book is the last one, but I am working on um, finishing up proofs right now for a book about three sisters that have lived in Maine. And this is the third in the series that'll be coming out in early May. It's a, it's a wonderful story. And each sister sort of takes a turn as the main character. And I studied a lot about birth order, which is really kind of fun. But um, And so that's in proofs. And then I'm actually working in the creative sense where I am have a new um, kind of like a summer beach book called uh, that's going to be set in Cape Cod. Oh, so, ice cream store in Cape Cod. My husband is an ice cream maker. Oh, I love that. ice cream school. That's so cool. <laughs> Isn't that fun? We'll just save that for a whole nother time. Yeah, that'll be our next podcast together. We're going to talk about ice cream school yes. and ice cream book. That is so fun. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much. You're such a joy to be with and to talk to. And I truly have enjoyed your book. And I know that many other people will. All the links to Suzanne and how to get her book will be in the show notes. And I just want to thank all of you for joining us today on the Start Small, Believe Big podcast. I pray this podcast has empowered you to live life with meaning, allowing Jesus to work in and through your life one step, decision, and action at a time. I hope you're back next week for another episode. I hope you're back next week for another episode. And can I also ask you to help out with the show? Subscribe to the Start Small, Believe Big podcast where you listen. You can also sign up for my daily devotion email that I send out Monday through Friday. You can get that link in the show notes or go over to my website, billyjouse.com and never miss a devotion or an episode of the podcast. I promise no spam, just Jesus and me hanging out in your inbox. Also, if you could leave an honest review on iTunes, your ratings and reviews really help. I read each one and I thank you in advance for those reviews. Now let's not resist that small beginning but persist in the next thing God is calling us to do. Be blessed, my dear friends. Until next time.